0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Faithful History Podcast, Episode 1, The First Christian Emperor, Part 1. There's a great debate that has been raging amongst historians for quite some time now. This debate centers around what acts as the driving force for history. One side claims that social social trends, economic impacts, and other factors set and dictate the historical narrative. This is a more recent view and is in contention with the more traditional view. That traditional view says that great men drive history. That them imposing their will upon their own society is what shapes the historical narrative. Men like Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, and Napoleon Bonaparte, to name a few. I'm not at all qualified to jump into this debate and offer my own perspective on the matter, but I do think it's clear that social trends like the spread of religion Economic trends like prosperity or depression and other factors like disease and climate do play a part in what has transpired in the past. But every now and then, great figures arise who, through their own ambition, confidence, persuasion, and talent, have undeniably tremendous impacts in their own times. Men and women whose names are remembered, either positively or negatively, and who have left their own unmistakable mark on the story of humanity. One of those figures would be the subject of this episode and the next few episodes. His name in his native Latin was Flavius Valerius Constantinus. We know him as Constantine the Great. With any great story, it's important to establish the setting where our tale takes place. That setting would be the premier power of the Mediterranean during the ancient world, the Roman Empire. Now, when I say Roman Empire, what comes to mind? I'm sure many of you think of the movie Gladiator, which, despite its historical inaccuracies, does a good job of portraying Rome as a whole for those previously unfamiliar with it. Others might think of famous Roman works of architecture, like the Colosseum or the Pantheon or ruins of aqueducts or great public bathhouses. Most probably imagine legendary figures such as Julius Caesar or Caesar Augustus. Names that even the person who's least interested in history is still somewhat familiar with. All of those things conjure up ideas of Rome at its height, a period of time during the 2nd century AD known in Latin as the Pax Romana, or in English as the Roman Peace. This was a mighty empire that encompassed all of the Mediterranean and most of Western Europe, with borders reaching the Atlantic Ocean in the west, Iraq in the east, Egypt and the North African coast in the south, and England in the north. I've posted a map of the Roman Empire at its height in the year 117 AD on the Faithful History Facebook page if you want to go give that a look. This is a land in which emperors like Trajan, Hadrian, and Marcus Aurelius commanded respect and loyalty anywhere the symbol of Roman power, the golden eagle, was displayed. It was a bastion of civilization and the bulwark against barbarians. However, our story begins long after the glory days of Rome. Augustus and Marcus Aurelius are dead and gone, and the empire is left with leaders who cannot live up to those glorious heights. Our story sees Rome on the brink of collapse during the crisis of the 3rd century. In the latter half of the 3rd century AD, the glory days were but a distant memory. Rome's enemies were all advancing, from barbarian tribes on the far side of the Rhine and Danube rivers to the long-standing rival Sassanid Persian Empire in the east. Rampant inflation and other economic problems caused instability everywhere and a dramatic reduction in the standard of living. Emperors came and went like the seasons with their reigns in most cases being measured in months rather than years. Civil wars, usurpations, and assassinations meant most emperors had their reigns end violently rather than dying from natural causes. Of the 26 recognized claimants to the throne from 235 AD to 284 AD, 19 of them died violently, with 13 believed to have been assassinated. In fact, the empire actually split into three different empires in the 260s AD, The Gallic Empire included most of modern-day France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and England, while the Palmyrene Empire included modern-day Syria and the Levant, and most of Turkey and Egypt. I've posted a map of these two breakaway states on the Facebook page as well. It's safe to say that the Roman Empire was coming apart at the seams. Now, heroic figures like the emperors Gallienus, Aurelian, and Probus did what they could to hold things together, with Aurelian actually defeating the Gallic and Palmyrene empires to restore imperial borders. But for every quote-unquote good emperor, there were plenty more bad ones. The crisis didn't come to an end until the 280s or 290s AD during the reign of Emperor Diocletian. Diocletian was a military officer who had served with distinction for years under previous emperors. After the suspicious death of then-Emperor Carus in 284 AD, while on campaign against the Sassanid Persians, Diocletian was chosen to become the next emperor by a gathering of military officers. In order to prevent the tragedies and disasters of the last century from happening again, he made drastic reforms to the empire. The most pertinent to our story is the introduction of the Tetrarchy. Diocletian believed the empire had become too big and was faced with too many external threats to be effectively governed by one man. Instead of one ruler, he decided the empire needed four. To accomplish this, Diocletian divided the empire in in half, east and west. Each half would be ruled by an Augustus. Further, east and west were divided in half again, with the two other regions being ruled by a Caesar. The two Augusti would be the two senior partners, with their respective Caesar being the junior partner. I posted a map on the Facebook page that shows the breakdown uh, of each region, so go take a look at that if you want more detail. Also, just for clarity's sake, Augustus and Caesar had been transformed from names to titles bestowed upon emperors shortly after the men who bore those names died. For example, Diocletian's full imperial title in English was Imperator Caesar Gaius Aurelius Valerius Diocletianus Augustus. Diocletian believed the Tetrarchy would allow for competent rulers to have a rapid and effective response to whatever problems were affecting their region of the empire, instead of just one man being pulled in all directions trying to put out every fire by himself. Now that he had his tetrarchy, he needed to fill the other positions. For the position of co-Augustus, he chose his trusted general Maximian, who would rule the west while Diocletian ruled the east. Shortly after Diocletian ascended to power, he had been faced with a rebellion led by one of his predecessor's sons. Maximian had helped Diocletian remain in power and was the obvious choice for this position. Though they were technically equals, Diocletian would always be seen as the more senior ruler and Maximian always seemed to fall in line with whatever Diocletian wanted. For their Caesars, Diocletian appointed a man by the name of Galerius to serve under him in the east and a man by the name of Constantius Chlorus to serve under Maximian in the west. Galerius was also a military man who had long served with distinction under former emperors, making him a likely candidate. Along with his ascension to power, he married Diocletian's daughter, becoming his son-in-law. Constantius Chlorus, like the other three, was a military man himself. He had also previously served as the governor of Dalmatia, which is modern-day Albania, Croatia, Bosnia, and Serbia, giving him experience as an administrator. Remember these four names, as they all play an important role in our story ahead. Now, each of the four directly controlled a quarter of the empire and could lend assistance to the others when needed. When an Augustus either died or retired, their respective Caesar would succeed them and appoint their own new Caesar to serve under them. So, for example, Galerius was expected to succeed Diocletian as Eastern Augustus, and Constantius Chlorus was expected to succeed Maximian as Western Augustus when the time came. To help kind of keep all these names straight, I've also posted pictures of uh, busts that were made of each of the four um, to kind of help you keep track of them in your mind. For now, we'll focus on Western Caesar Constantius Chlorus, serving under Western Augustus Maximian. Constantius ruled the provinces of Gaul, modern-day France, the Netherlands and Belgium, and Britannia, modern-day England and Wales, which you can see on that map I mentioned earlier. He set up his capital in modern-day Trier and moved his family there, including his first wife, Helena, and eldest son, Constantine. Constantine was born in the year 272 AD in the Roman city of Nisus, modern-day Nis, Serbia. He grew up in Diocletian's court in the east, spending most of his days in the new imperial capital of Nicomedia in modern-day Turkey. It was common practice for upper-class Roman children to grow up largely away from their families, spending most of their formative years with other influential families to whom their parents had connections. It would have actually been a tremendous honor and benefit for Constantine to grow up in Diocletian's court. There he received a formal education, and grew up like all good Roman children in the upper echelons of society did, as a practicing pagan. It was during his time serving under Diocletian that Constantine got his first taste of military life and combat. During his early to mid-twenties, he participated in campaigns against barbarians along the Danube River and against the Sassanid Persians in modern-day Syria and Iraq, serving with honor and distinction by all accounts. Constantine continued his military career under both Diocletian and Galerius until his thirties, when he was recalled to Nicomedia. It was in the imperial capital, in 303 AD, that he would witness events firsthand that no doubt heavily influenced his future. Those events were Diocletian's great persecutions of Christians. Before we dive into that, I think it's necessary to get a feel for where Christianity was at during the early 300s AD. From the time when the faith was first spreading throughout the empire, it had mainly seen growth among the various urban centers the gospel message was particularly appealing to the poor and downtrodden, most of whom congregated in cities. This is also why we see the Apostle Paul writing to churches located in major urban centers, such as Ephesus, Thessalonica, and even Rome itself. By the year 200 AD, it's approximated that there were around 200,000 Christians living within the empire. That number grew to 250,000 in 250 AD, or about 2% of the total Roman population. For the first 200 years of the religion's existence, Christians faced alternating periods of persecution and toleration. For most of the empire's history, as long as people paid their taxes and didn't cause problems, the Romans allowed local populations to worship whatever gods they wanted. However, that came with a huge caveat. Local populations were required to recognize the divinity of emperors after they died and make sacrifices in their honor, which we'll discuss more in detail soon. That stipulation became a major point of contention between the Roman authorities and first the Jews, then the Christians. When tensions between Rome and Christians rose, persecutions surely followed. Most are familiar with Emperor Nero and his severe persecution of Christians in 64 AD following the Great Fire of Rome. While the treatment of the faithful was indeed severe, it was mostly contained to the city of Rome itself, as Nero was looking to divert blame away from him and his administration and their response to the fire, and place it on an easy scapegoat. From then on, most emperors considered Christianity a problem for local governors to deal with, taking a mostly hands-off approach. It's not until the reign of Emperor Decius in 250 AD, during the crisis of the 3rd century that we discussed earlier... Do we see emperors getting involved again and mandating widespread persecutions throughout the empire? Decius mandated that all citizens in the empire were required by law to make sacrifices in honor of all the deceased emperors. This practice and belief was known as the Roman imperial cult. Once an emperor died, the senate would vote and elevate their memory to a divine status the deceased emperor would then be considered a semi-divine figure, inhabiting the realm of the pagan gods. This practice was crucial to the Roman state and essential to how the citizens viewed their emperors, both living and dead. Even though emperors weren't considered divine while living, they were considered to be carrying on the tradition and office of previous emperors who now were considered divine. As such, the emperor himself was connected to the divine pagan realm. Disrespect to the imperial cult was considered an act of treason, because in the mind of the Romans, denial of any deceased emperor's divinity threatened the legitimacy of the senate, and more importantly, the current emperor himself. In 250 AD, most Christians rightfully refused this mandate. Decius, most likely fueled by a desire to legitimize his fledgling reign and secure his shaky position in power, came down hard on the church. He was a usurper, having come to power after rebelling and killing his predecessor, Philip the Arab. On his orders, Christians faced torture and execution, including the reigning pope at the time, Pope Fabian. The persecutions were particularly harsh in the North African coastal city of Carthage and the Egyptian coastal city of Alexandria, which had transformed over the centuries into centers of Christian influence. Decius ended up being killed in battle by a tribe of barbarians known as the Goths during the Battle of Abritus in 251 AD. His successor, a man by the name of Trebonianus Gallus, ended the persecutions shortly into his own reign. Now, a little side note that I think is interesting is Decius came to power after rebelling and killing the then emperor Philip the Arab, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, Decius defeated and, uh, his army and killed Philip in 249 during the Battle of Verona. The only reason I mention the obscure Emperor Philip is because, according to one ancient source, he actually converted to Christianity during his reign. If I remember correctly, there was a church that Philip wanted to tour, and the local priest refused him entry until he repented of his sins. Philip did so and was allowed to uh, tour the church. Now the accuracy of this account is unclear and is only mentioned in one source, but it exists nonetheless, even if it's not widely believed. So back to our main story: local persecutions of Christians came and went during the rest of the third century, with the only other major one being ordered by Emperor Valerian in 257 to 260 A.D. Another side note: Valerian's reign came to an end when he was captured by the Sassanid Persians during the Battle of Edessa in 260 AD. He was then executed either by having molten gold poured down his throat or by being skinned alive. This is the one of the few mentions of a Roman emperor actually being captured and killed during battle, so I figured it was worth mentioning. His son and successor Gallienus, who we mentioned before, ended the persecutions not long after. 40 years of tolerance followed with the Christian population of the Roman Empire ballooning to 10% by the year 300 AD. By the time the Tetrarchy was becoming firmly entrenched in the Roman political system, Christianity had grown to make up a sizable minority of the population. Bishops were wielding some influence among their local communities, and more and more bureaucrats, administrators, and soldiers were becoming professing believers. Despite this, Christianity was still most popular amongst the lower class, while the vast majority of those in power and position of influence remained pagan. Remember, both Constantine and his father were pagans. While your average pagan citizen of Rome cared very little about religious differences, many in power continued to see Christianity as a dangerous and subversive portion of the population. It is in this context that Diocletian ordered the most brutal and extensive persecution ever seen. Ruling from Nicomedia in the east, where Christianity had a more noticeable presence, he and his administration no doubt had more contact with the faithful than his counterparts in the west. On top of that, Galerius, his Caesar, was a staunch and vocal opponent of Christianity. With that, half the empire was under the rule of those openly hostile to the faith. The persecution began locally in Nicomedia on February 23rd, 303 AD. On that day, Diocletian issued an edict that a new local church be torn down, its scriptures burned, and all its wealth seized. This was just the beginning. The following day, he and Galerius issued joint edicts that sought to start the process of eliminating Christianity throughout the empire. Christians were prohibited from gathering to worship, with all churches ordered to be burned down and all scripture burned as well. All wealth owned by the church and the clergy was to be seized. Many tried to hide pieces of scripture, some successfully, and others paying with their lives to protect them. Christians also lost the right to petition the courts, opening up them to the possibility of torture as they couldn't legally defend themselves. They were also banned from responding to positions brought against them in court, Christian senators, men of high rank and respect in society, had their status and prestige taken from them. Christian soldiers and veterans were stripped of their ranks and privileges. Previously freed Christian slaves were re-enslaved. After 40 years of peaceful coexistence, the Roman ruling elite essentially went to war with Christianity. Maximian, the western Augustus, firmly enforced the order in the lands he directly ruled over, which is modern-day Italy, Spain, Portugal, and the North African coast. Galerius was bloodthirsty and fanatical in his enforcement of the edict. He even went as far as requesting any and all Christians be burned alive. While Diocletian rejected this, many local magistrates adopted burning alive as their primary method of execution. No doubt, bringing much joy to Galerius. The only one of the four rulers who ignored the edict was Constantius Chlorus, the Western Caesar. He refused to enforce the persecutions. With some historic historians speculating he actually disapproved of it. Whether Constantius simply ignored it because he thought it was impractical, or disagreed with the edict due to moral obligations, the end result is the same. Christians in Gaul and Britannia were mostly free from persecution. While they enjoyed relative tolerance, things only got worse for their eastern brethren. A second edict was issued in the summer of 303 AD, ordering the imprisonment of all bishops and priests. Prisons swelled in the east and became severely overcrowded. In response to this, Diocletian ordered a third edict in November that clergymen could be released if they performed sacrifices to the pagan gods. Some did willingly, others did so under threat of torture. Eusebius, a Christian historian and clergyman who lived through the persecutions, reported that at least one priest had his hands seized and was forced to perform a sacrifice. Others were lucky simply being released after being told they had performed a sacrifice, even though they actually hadn't. Some wardens no doubt wanted to reduce their prison populations in whatever way they could. It didn't end there, though. A fourth edict was issued in the following year, 304 AD, that ordered all men, women, and children across the empire had to gather in their local towns to perform a collective sacrifice. Any who refused would be executed. Like before, Maximian and Galerius enforced the edict in their realms, Galerius fanatically so. Again, Constantius refused to enforce it. Constantine was present in Nicomedia during these years to watch all of this unfold from a position inside the court of Diocletian. Though a pagan himself, there's no evidence that he ever supported the policies, most likely adopting the stance of his father in the West. Constantine recalled later in life that he actually tried to oppose their implementation. Regardless, he had the unique position of being opposed to the persecutions but also having access to Diocletian, With that, he was also likely present during some discussions that were held about the persecutions between the Augustus and his advisors. However, Diocletian wouldn't remain in power for much longer. He suffered a rather debilitating illness during the winter of 304-305 AD and made the unprecedented move to actually resign from office on May 1st, 305 AD. At his request, Maximian resigned too in order to clear the way for Galerius and Constantius Chlorus to take their places. Though Maximian cooperated publicly, he was rather upset about having to resign privately. During a public ceremony, Diocletian announced who the two new Caesars would be. Most of the empire expected them to be Constantine and Maxentius, the son of Maximian. Both were the sons of those who had already served in the Tetrarchy and were well respected themselves, making them the obvious choices. However, it was not to be. The two new Caesars were to be Severus and Maximinus, both senior officers in the army. More importantly, both were close allies of Galerius, with Maximinus being his nephew. Many speculated that Galerius had manipulated things behind the scenes to get his allies into power at the expense of Constantine and Maxentius. Now, three of the four Tetrarchs were either Galerius himself or close allies of his. Only Constantius Chlorus, the new Western Augustus, stood alone. Needless to say, both Constantine and Maxentius were furious about being passed over for the roles. Lactantius, another contemporary Christian historian, reported that Galerius and Maxentius hated each other and saw each other as threats, with this move only adding fuel to the fire. There's no doubt Galerius also saw the young, capable, and ambitious Constantine as a threat as well. Maxentius was at least safely away from the reach of Galerius, living in a country estate outside of Rome. Constantine, however, was still present in Nicomedia, now the capital of Galerius. He clearly saw the danger he was in, realistically being a nicely treated hostage, far away from the safety of his father's court. Luckily for him, his father recognized the danger his son was in too. Not long after their dual ascension to Augustus, Constantius wrote to Galerius, asking permission for Constantine to be allowed to travel west to join him on a planned campaign in Britannia. A popular legend says that Constantine presented the letter to Galerius after the latter had spent all night drinking heavily, and in his drunken state, actually accepted. Constantine then immediately left Nicomedia, riding day and night towards the west. It's even said that he picked up new horses at each postal office along the road, crippling the old ones, so no agents of Galerius could use them to catch up. Galerius, waking up the next day hungover but sober, realized his mistake and indeed sent agents to capture him. However, Constantine was already long gone by then. Even if it's not true, it's quite the dramatic and entertaining tale. Regardless of the details, Constantine did end up arriving safely at his father's court in Gaul in the summer of 305 AD. From there, the two would plan their campaign against a barbarian tribe known as the Picts, who live in modern-day Scotland. Meanwhile, Maxentius, still fuming over being passed over for the role of Caesar, planned his next move from just outside Rome. We'll leave the story here for now. If you made it this far, I appreciate you sticking with me as I set up context and historical setting for our story. Some topics we cover will require just as much backstory, while others won't. With a civilization as old and as complex as Rome, a fair bit of context was required. Also, I'm completely new to podcasting as this is the first real episode I've ever researched, written, and recorded. As such, there's plenty I'm still learning and getting the hang of. Please bear with me as I grow into this new role and helpful critiques are always welcome. Next time, we'll dive into Constantine's ascension to power and what the and what that meant for the rest of the tetrarchs. Thank you for listening. Until next time.